It's Dr. Stu's Podcast at drstuespodcast.com. Subscribe on iTunes. Check out the Facebook page for my pal, Dr. Stuart Fishbein. I'm Brian Whitman. How are you, Dr. Stu? It's another glorious day in Southern California, Brian. It is a nice day today. Not so glorious in Northern California. Oh, they had an earthquake. The biggest earthquake in 25 years since 1989. I remember the 89 earthquake. You do, right? Yeah, there was a San Francisco was playing Oakland, I think, in the World Series. Yeah, it was during the World Series, right? Al Michaels was doing the play-by-play, as I recall. Is that right? I don't recall that. I think it was Al Michaels. Why do I think that? Maybe because it was. Do you believe in miracles? I do believe in miracles. <laughs> I lived through 1980, the miracle on ice. You believe in miracles uh, with your Los Angeles Kings. I mean, it's sort of a, they're almost a dynasty. That's a miracle. Uh, yeah, okay. We can, we can put that in the category of miracles. <laughs> right. Like, three years ago, I would have thought it was a miracle. Now, now it's like, I'm expected now. When do you get back to Staples Center for the first game of the next season? It's early October, I believe. So oh, it is? We're about five, six weeks away. Our producer's phone is going off. This guy's a nut. He's a professional. Sitting over there, he's got you know phones <laughs> speaking, going off. Speaking and, of John, I, w- I was waiting for John on the front step of his uh, place. That's where common we, here. Where we do our Dr. Stu's podcast from because we was out walking Bella across the street at the dog park. Right. And he comes back, and Bella's wearing this cute little sweater. And he's, go- he's telling me a story about how Bella got her sweater off the other day. And I'm sort of asking him, well, why does Bella need a sweater? It's Southern California. He right, says, it's 110. Because she's got a rash because she's allergic to stuff. Hot spots. In- hot spots excuse excuse me. me, John? She gets hot spots. Yeah, from what? Yeah. From what? Um, well, she had to be tested extensively from the vet. <laughs> cost a lot of money. Um, she get, she is allergic to a lot of the stuff at the park, the grasses and pollens and stuff See, right, like so this that. Is, and she'll roll in it if she doesn't have her shirt, which makes it even worse. So this is what drives me crazy, because here we have a dog who's allergic to grass. Right. <laughs> so so well, I want to I ask a question. This is a serious question now. Okay. How, how does that happen? How does a wild animal... I mean, what is the deal with dogs allergic to grass? <laughs> I mean, what are they thinking? It's got to be domestication. It's just bred in. Yeah, well, I want to talk about it because I think it has, you know, one theory could be that it has to do with something called epigenetics. Oh. And you know what epigenetics is? I have no idea. Okay, well, I'm not sure either, but I'm going to try to explain. <laughs> well, what, you're the what, doctor. What I, mean, I know. Well, I read it. One, I read it someplace. And but, by the way, this is all about Bella, the mascot of Doctor Stu's podcast. That's correct. Right. The new mascot. Right. And Jamie, her, Jamie's been evicted. That's right. That's right. That's exactly <laughs> it's the new right. mascot. We went from a cat to a dog. Right. We're moving up. Right. All right. Except if you're a cat, right? Or if you love cats. I mean, some people well, I do love cats. I do too, right. but I don't own any. Okay. Okay. So well, epigenetics. It's called. Well, here's the, here's the deal. The the thought is is that genes are not set in stone, and your DNA is not set in stone, and it reacts to your environment around you. And over generations, things can evolve and change, and it actually can happen quite quickly. For instance, um, in the birthing world, they talk about babies who are born by cesarean section may eventually lose the ability to give birth vaginally. All right, because they're, they've never experienced the stresses and other things that help shape their DNA. They don't deal with stresses as well. There is an increase uh, in allergies and uh, type 1 diabetes and things in babies born by cesarean section. And so I'm just thinking that, you know, years of domestication, I don't know, I'm sure Bella wasn't born by cesarean section, but the truth is, is that how, how does a wild animal in, in, in a matter of several generations become allergic to things like dirt and grass uh, there's something going on. We're doing something wrong. Right. It seems very sort of uncommon. It's something you wouldn't expect. Now, by the way, you talk about the birthing world, and you talk about sort well, I of— I always talk about the birthing I world. I know you do here on Dr. Stu's podcast. That's all I know. Well, no, it's not all you know, but it's certainly one of your well, specialties. Hockey. That and hockey. Okay, right. Okay. It seems to you know, uh, on a— And not, poker. Right. Uh, poker, too, yeah. You're very good at hockey. Well, you played hockey as a kid, right? I did. Yeah, okay. Poorly. Okay, but, yeah. The, uh, the This is a more serious— uh, issue because the genetics of in the birthing world i'm just it occurs to me dr stew as you're talking about it there is this sort of debate about um 
genetics, right? And if and and now with science, mom and dad, they can tell genetic, for example, a predisposition or a or a proclivity, a genetic proclivity to sort of Down syndrome, right? Well, and then mom, some it's controversial because they're making decisions sometimes about termination of pregnancy based on that news, and then it becomes well, if you can genetically engineer the fetus. Then, uh, you know, and then you hear these terrible stories. Well, the, I don't want a baby with blue eyes, right? And then you can get real sort of cafeteria pick and choose with the genetics of your baby, right? Is, am I right about this? Or am I, is I yeah, well, I think your examples are a little bit extreme. I don't think people are going to abort babies because they have blue eyes. But I, I do think that there is uh, that stuff beginning to uh, come to the forefront. There are so many genetic tests now and genetic screening things. It's a, sort of a different topic than... Than, than genes that are set that evolve or that change based on the environmental factors. I guess so what you I'm can, asking... You can pick your perfect baby. Right. But if your perfect baby has a lousy birth experience, that doesn't mean that that baby would be the same as if it had a good birth experience. That's what I'm trying to say. I understand. So, Bella, I have to ask you right now, how was your, how was your birth experience? She's wagging her tail. It looks like she wants to answer. Oh, she's crawling under the sofa. John, right where was she born? She was born where? I don't know. Maybe she was a C-section, and that's the problem. Well, that's what I said. Right, but you were in the other room. John, when you're in the other room on the phone, can you be louder? Is it possible when we're doing the podcast, you could be louder? In the other- I, could, I could ramp it up a little bit. Because yeah, we couldn't hear everything you said. We could hear every other thing you said. So if you can just make it a little bit louder, that'd be awesome. These mics are designed to just really pick up what's in front of them. It's a professional environment, Brian. You guys are really professional. You're passing the mic back and forth. We don't, right. even, we don't even have three mics at Dr. Seuss' podcast today. But we're I mean, working on that. On? We're, we're, we're moving. We, we had three mics last time when Dr. Berlin was here. Yeah, I do. I, I how is Elliot Berlin? Is he well? Uh, yeah, he's, yeah, good. As far as I know, he's very well. I listen back to our podcast with him. I listen back to every one of these shows we do. I do listen. I back did a. To- uh, he had a screening. Uh, uh- a production screening of his new documentary. I saw him post something about that online. It was uh, excellent. You know, of course, I'm in it, so that makes it. Well, that uh, really you know, the, the the jury pulled us tainted there. Okay, let's talk about this. Um, you know, the, something came across in the news, and Doctor Stu and I will trade emails back and forth as we prepare to come in and do Doctor Stu's podcast. And one of these interesting, sort of provocative issues is about drug testing for doctors. Oh. And you brought this to my attention. And just on the face of it, everybody already has an opinion. When I say drug testing for doctors, already as a listener, you've said yeah or nah. You've already made sort of a first impression. I think folks hear that. They go, okay, well, the doctor's going to be performing surgery on me. Do I want him coming in high? Of course not. Right, right. Well, you're talking, I mean, you're talking about Proposition 46 here in California. I would, I would recommend our listeners go off to um, the website to take a look at what Prop, Prop 46 has to offer. But um, it's a ballot proposition, which the real purpose of it is sponsored by the trial lawyers of California is to raise the pain and suffering minimums. But that is sort of buried by the Attorney General in her description of the bill. Well, that's sort of common with some of these propositions. You know, they'll call it the clean air and clean water proposition, but the truth is it doesn't have anything to do with they that. They want to raise your taxes or right, something, right? Right, right, right. And it's the same thing that's going on here. I mean, in the initial polling of this, when they put out the... Um, the press release based on this proposition about drug testing physicians, and they give the sob story about these two young people who were killed by a woman who was on prescription drugs, and the doctors, two doctors were prescribing for her and didn't know it. So that's another part of the bill is, is to have a registry where uh, people can go and uh, consult a state pre- prescription drug database. But that before. already exists. Well, it doesn't does, it? but it, I, this is... It's not effective enough, Clearly, apparently. this is an emotional ploy to get people to want to vote for this proposition. And um, what's interesting... 
to me is to look at the initial polling was about 50 some percent for the proposition and 30 some percent against the proposition. Okay, with some undecided in there, of right, course. Right, but no, that was before any money has been spent. The um, the forces against Proposition 46 are going to spend outspend those four about 10 to 1. And I'm, I'm on the anti-Proposition 46, not because I'm anti-drug testing for doctors, but this proposition isn't about drug testing for doctors. If it was for drug testing for doctors, and that was all it was, imagine for a moment a proposition here at home in California. Of course, we're heard, heard worldwide on Dr. Stu's podcast, but we, we do this from Southern California, from Los Angeles. Uh, if the proposition really was one sentence, should your doctor be drug tested, vote yes or no, I think most people would say yes. Yes, they would. But let me explain to you what this proposition specifically says about the drug testing of physicians. Okay. It says, require drug and alcohol testing of doctors and reporting the positive tests to the California Medical Board, which then requires the California Medical Board to suspend doctors pending investigation of positive tests and take disciplinary action if the doctor was found impaired while on duty. Okay. Now, I don't have a problem with the last part. Right. But does that mean that if I get, I have a couple of drinks before I go to bed on Tuesday night and I wake up in the morning and there's suddenly an inspector in my office and I have to pee in a cup and I test positive for uh, alcohol or, alcohol. Right. or say I'm taking medicinal marijuana or say I'm uh, living in Colorado and I smoke marijuana right. All right, which is perfectly legal now, am I going to be suspended until an investigation has taken place? Does that mean I have to close my office? What does this stuff really mean? And that's where you know the the the, the complication comes from the uh, enforcement of such a uh, such an act. The pure statement of do we want to drug test physicians? You know that makes perfect sense if sort of we live in a uh, if you believe in that sort of totalitarian nature of a society. But why just physicians? Why shouldn't we be drug testing everyone who's providing a service for us? Right. Well, I think some uh, obviously, yeah, it's a fair question, and sort of the the issue begs that question. Do you want to be Do you want to be defended by a trial lawyer who's just had two martinis for lunch? No. Should he be? T- should he have to pee in a cup before he goes back into the courtroom? But there is a difference, of course. Obviously, when is we, there? Yeah, and I think here is life the difference. or death. Yeah, I I think the different. Well, okay, yeah, that okay. In- incarceration or non incarceration? Right. When, when people, obviously, when, it become, when it's your physician, obviously, it's your physical well-being, right? So that's sort of a different thing than your accountant, uh, you know, having a three-martini lunch and being a little tipsy when he does your tax I return. I agree that, but how do, who gets to decide and who draws the line? Well, I, I mean, guess Brian, we get to decide when we— What if I spend, you know, uh, $100 on a Kings ticket, and one of the Kings players happens to come in drunk and have a bad performance that day? Should I get my, do I get my money back? Should we drug test all hockey players? Should we drug test all rock singers? Should we drug test? I mean, the, these people are putting on a performance. I mean, yes, it's not life or death, right. but people are paying for a product, right, but that's and the they may issue. be getting a substandard product. Right, I understand that. But so I don't, I'm, you know me, I'm libertarian in these issues. I don't want drug testing for any of these people. I know that, and I think it's probably better if you just say that, right? If you just say, well, I'm libertarian, and sort of philosophically, I'm opposed to that when trying to compare sort of the performance of a professional athlete to your doctor's performance if he or she is performing surgery on you. I mean, I think- What pe- happens to you, Brian, if you came in inebriated? Um, probably, I'd probably do a- <laughs> Probably do a pretty good show, actually, if I uh, think about it. Uh, well, look, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, th- there is, there. I'm not drug tested for my job. There, you know, nor, I, nor should you be. Right. right. Uh, but my job is not life or death either. I mean, it's a radio show. 
I mean, you, you have to. Well, sometimes, have to, sometimes have, I'm driving and I'm listening to you, and I'm ready to drive off the road. I understand that, and then I guess it can be life and death. But Correct. sort of, but that is sort of that is sort of the uh, you know that is sort of the elephant in the room, right? If it's life or death, I mean, we understand. This. Okay, I mean, so if it's my my job is my job is le- is less uh, critical to somebody's well being than yours, Doctor Stu. Okay, so if we're talking life or death, all right, do we drug test? Firefighters? I think no. we do. Do we drug do, do we drug test chiropractors? Do we drug test dermatologists? Do we drug test uh, radiologists who are just reading X-rays? Or you're talking about drug testing neurosurgeons and cardiac surgeons? I mean, how, uh, is it life or death for a dermatologist to look at a 16-year-old with acne? No, it's not. Okay, so does he get exempted from being? So again, this drive, life or death issue is a way of pushing the envelope toward. The idea that drug testing is a good idea. Sure, and but I. It, but it also it, it it you're taking away liberty. I understand that. You know the old saying is, uh, people who would surrender uh, liberty uh, for uh, safety de- deserve neither. Deserve neither, right? right. Yeah, right. But you know, it's interesting to me because uh, you know I think folks listening to Doctor Stu's podcast, and sometimes I think one of my jobs here is to ask the question that somebody listening might have in the forefront of their mind right now, and they wish they could ask you. So I'll ask you: In your experience, has the issue of alcohol abuse or drug abuse been common among physicians? Uh, not that I know of, but of course you read that it is. But uh, but like anything else in the media, you only read when something bad happens related to that issue. Right. I don't know of anybody, I don't know that there's more alcoholism or more drug abuse. You say that there might be because doctors have access to it. I don't think doctors can write a prescription for cocaine. Right. Uh, Anybody can go out and buy a beer. So I don't know that they have more access or not. They have a more stressful job than some, but they also aren't able to go out for happy hour a lot of times. They're not going out drinking. So honestly, God, I don't know that they have any more stress in their life. The, than the average truck driver. Do you think, Stu, that doctors and physicians should be more on guard on, you know, in terms of alcohol consumption or recreational drug use? I mean, if, if, you're, if you're a doctor, and by the way, I, I don't really know how I feel about Prop 46. I got to vote in November for it, right? For it or against it, right? It's coming up in November on the I'm ballot. I'm telling you to vote against it. I know you are. I'm getting that. <laughs> I get that. And by the way, I'm, my inclination is to vote against it too because I'm sorry. We haven't of, even talked about the, the, the economic consequences to the state of raising the, uh, the uh, pain and suffering limit. Right. If I'm a doctor, right. though, right? If I'm a doctor, though. Which is the I'm, real purpose of that bill. Sure. If I'm a doctor, how about airline pilots? That's another good one, right? Uh, with with experience comes confidence, and we hear this with airline pilots who will sit at the air the airport bar and have you know five drinks because to them, flying that airplane or to a doctor with experience treating that patient is just as common as you or I getting in the car and driving down the street. We have that degree of comfort. I mean, there's that level of comfort because you've done it so many times. So if it's an airline pilot, we hear this all the time, having five drinks at lunch. Well, that airline pilot, he's flown that plane a thousand times. He, he's pretty well, he's pretty, he's got it pretty well locked off that he can do it safely. No, it's actually been shown over and over again. And, and I am a pilot and I read the pilot literature, but it's been shown over and over again. You have no business drinking at all. You're a doctor and a pilot. You should be abstinent. The, <laughs> <laughs> abstinent? Uh, does that relate to drinking? I think abstinence. Uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, maybe, right? I'm not sure what you mean by that. Uh, zero tolerance. All right. Anyway, um, it's <laughs> been, it's been shown that drinking impairs your judgment when you're, when you're trying to manipulate a, uh, a vehicle or an airplane or something of that nature. That's been absolutely shown. All right. So there, I don't think there's any question about that. And then, and pilots are given the, uh, certain, they're given very tight restrictions by the FAA right. in what they can and cannot do and how much rest they need and all those sorts of things. And, I'm not necessarily against that. Um, 
it, but it is a it is a fine line as how you know the 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 slope keeps getting more slippery. We keep extending this to more and more things, and eventually it, it leads to who's going to police all this? Who's going to drug test? The government bureaucrats that are judging, giving the I mean, drug test. Yeah, it's like, like, can I, can I have urine tests from the uh, from the members of the medical board? Here's the next can I, proposition. Can I, can I find out what they what they had for lunch? Here's my proposition: Should drug testers be drug tested? There you go. <laughs> okay. I mean, ultimately, <laughs> maybe that's the name of our. Maybe we'll name the podcast. Uh, that the good name. Yeah, that's not a bad one. Should drug testers be yeah, drug tested? Should drug testers be drug tested? Well, I, mean, I would have to say yes. Them, who gives them? They're in positions of <laughs> immense power. Yeah. Sure. Right. All right. I'm not for that. I'm for that's why I'm for small government. I'm for uh, the little guy. I think Mm -hmm. that people should make their own choices. I am really tired. And, you know, I preach this all the time when it comes to women's choices in birthing and in birth is that I'm tired of people determining what their choice should should be. Mm -hmm. We should spend our effort on making choices safe and let the women then decide what they want to do. And it's the same thing with your doctor or anything else. You can't have, you know, you can go to a doctor and ask your doctor, what is your C-section rate? And whatever he tells you, you don't know if it's the truth. How are you supposed to know it's the truth? How can you go about confirming that? You really can't, right? No, I mean, I would rather have the government step in and, and publish everyone's C-section rate right. than have them pee in a cup personally right interesting we'll have more information on prop 46 on dr stew's facebook page also on the website here dr stew's podcast so if you're listening on itunes make sure a little cross-reference here uh, get your homework and your lesson plan detailed for you if you're listening on itunes make sure you cross-reference over to dr stew's podcast.com check out dr stew's facebook page as well for some of the reference material that we talk about here on the podcast yeah and i'd, I'd like to say one other thing about this pot of this prop 46 um in that, again, the whole purpose of it isn't drug testing and it isn't having a registry for a database for prescriptions. It's about making more money for trial lawyers. And it's clear and simple in that case. And and even the San Diego Union-Tribune, which I'm not sure... Is I think it, it's conservative. You, oh, it is? I think it is. Okay, well, it sounds like it might be. But they argued that the first sentence of the ballot title, which is, quote, drug and alcohol testing of doctors, unquote, was an intentionally placed first by Attorney General Kamala Harris. Right. The editorial board continued, that's right, Attorney General Kamala Harris intentionally deceived ballot signers by highlighting one of the fig leaves that trial lawyers attached to the measure to hide their real intent is in keeping with her long history of using misleading ballot titles and summaries to help measure her al- help measures her allies like and hurt measures that they don't. Right. And I, and I you know, look, you know me, I, I think that truth in advertising is an oxymoron. Mm-hmm. You cannot believe pretty much anything that goes on. But the ballot initiative thing here in California has really gotten out of hand. You yeah, guys have talked about it on your show. Yeah, we have talked about it on the on the radio that it, it is a, you know, it's it seems that, uh, and, and they're overwhelming. I mean, when it comes to propositions on the ballot, I mean, who really, look, I think folks look to organizations they trust. Maybe it's the Republican Party. Maybe it's the Democratic Party. Maybe it's the Libertarian Party. Maybe it's a teacher's union. Maybe it's a, uh, the police officer's union. People look to organizations they trust to tell them what to vote on these props. Well, because who's sitting down and, and reading and I would say this? 85. Five percent of people who actually go and vote don't haven't looked at anything until they go and vote. That's right, and they see the title, and, and they then very they see quickly the title sort of drug and all testing for doctors. Oh yes, oh, I like, like that. Yeah, idea. sure, right. And they, and, I mean, that's so misleading. Right. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. We were talking, Dr. Stu and I were talking about uh, home birth, of course, right? We talk about that uh, on the podcast here. We talk about it uh, off off the show. It's a sort of a... Uh, it's a passion for me. It's a passion for you, certainly. And it's made me very interested because... Uh, b- because uh, Oh, I should tell you that, Brian, that I I submitted this week, the, when we talked a few podcasts ago about my first 100 births. Right. And this week, uh, I submitted my paper for 
to hopefully get it published. Oh, cool, cool. Yeah, so I will let you know in a couple of weeks. Uh, I'm not sure the process of how long it takes, but the process of trying to get the paperwork together to submit it was an immense process. And you had a busy week. I guess it was last week as we record this. Did you deliver three? Did you catch three babies in one week? Yeah. Did, did I did I read that right? Did you catch three babies in one week? Yeah. Yeah, that happens not infrequently. Okay, all right, yeah, because that's... Yeah, a- it was a, a, a regular delivery, I think... Uh, no, it was a vacuum delivery, a breech delivery, and a um, VBAC delivery. And I saw one of the celebrations there, because Dr. Stu catches the baby. Mom and dad were there. There was a dog. Well, I, hope, I hope mom and dad were there. Yeah, there was a puppy, and there was a, another child. And everybody, with the exception of the child and the and the puppy, were enjoying. It appeared to be a glass of champagne in celebration. Oh, right. I saw that. That was a that kind was of a fun sweet. picture. Yeah, That's... that was a fun. That seemed to be a very um, of. Oh, that yeah, that was that woman. That woman was perfectly. She had a perfectly normal birth, but she went over forty-two weeks. She belong, Her she was getting her care with a midwife. Okay. And when she got to forty-two weeks, she was going to have to go have her care transferred to a physician in a hospital because of. Assembly Bill 1308, which passed here in California, which doesn't allow midwives to take care of women past 42 weeks. I see. So on the 42, the evening she turned 42 weeks, uh, the midwife just asked me if I would then take over her care. So will you come in sometimes to a home birth, Dr. Stu? You'll come in that late? I know sometimes you come in very... Yes, if I'm called by a midwife, I will come at their request if I'm available. Right, right. Right. Because typically you'll go how far out? So mom's pregnant and how far along typically will they be in contact with you about a home birth? Because this is usually, as we've talked about many times here on Dr. Stu's podcast, the decision to have a home birth is pretty well made by mom and dad or mom uh, pretty early on. They know if this is something they want to Yeah, I mean, most clients will will come into my practice the, the same way they come into any practice that you know, six, seven, eight, ten weeks along. Okay. And they'll have their prenatal care throughout the entire pregnancy. Some women in my practice come in around 36, 37 weeks because they discover that they're breech. Mm-hmm. And some women I end up seeing at the very end when I'm called by a midwife to come assist at their birth for a vacuum or for in this particular case because, you know, at, at one minute after midnight, she's now no longer legal for the midwife to deliver. Two minutes earlier, she was. And right. I, it's insane. And we've talked about the insanity of, of some of these uh, rules. And what's that prep like? When you go in to prep a couple, to prep mom for a home birth, what do they typically need to know going into that? I mean, well, what is what does that prep sound like? We, I mean, obviously, the, the environment of the home is is an issue, right? Yeah, well, um, there's a lot of things that we do over the, the several m- months of prenatal care to discuss getting ready for your home birth and what you might need. Um, there are some very important criteria, the not the least of which is making sure that the parents have the right mental stuff, that they're, that they're mentally prepared, that they are, are in the right frame of mind for having a home birth. What, what, what in terms of mental preparation and emotional, if I may, preparation for a home birth is different from emotional or mental preparation for a birth in a hospital? Are there a lot of... We know that birth goes better when women are not anxious or, or scared or, uh, uh, or, being, or bothered. So we want to make sure that the environment at home, that they feel very safe there, they feel very safe with their team, that all the, all the any, any discor- uh, discordance between them and their, their partner or them and their in-laws or them and their parents has all been smoothed over so that everybody's on board that should be on board and nobody's going to be at the birth that's going to be annoying to them. Do you ever have to, uh, do you ever have to and I imagine this would be uncomfortable, right? If you're, if you're with a new client and you're sort of prepping them for a home birth, do you ever have to sort of 
evaluate their home. Like I'm, I'm thinking like A and E hoarders, right? People, this home <laughs> is like unsafe, or maybe it's not, maybe it's not clean enough. Yes. I mean, that's a that's a tough thing to have to bring up with somebody, right? Yeah. Well, I again, I've learned all my uh, tricks of the trade uh, for home birthing from my midwife colleagues who've been doing it long before I did, and I had no per, no reason to reinvent the wheel. So uh, about 36 weeks, uh, a, a couple that's planning a home birth, uh, we will do what's called a home prenatal visit. And instead of them coming to the office for their prenatal, for their hour-long prenatal visit, we go to their home. And sort of scope and out we, the we, locale. Yeah, we sit and we do the prenatal visit part of it. We do the same questions we always ask. We take their blood pressure. We check their urine. We do all that stuff, but we do it in their house. And then they give us a little tour of their house, and they tell us, uh, we ask them, like, what room would you like to see yourself giving birth in and you know and we're very clear about the fact that half the time when you predict you're going to give birth in this room you don't you give birth on the floor in the bathroom or in the kitchen or wherever else because it doesn't always work the way you want do you want a water birth let's look at your tub oh you've got a, a motel six tiny little bathtub not going to work not going to work we're going to bring you a uh, inflatable tub interesting um you have pets okay uh, you have other children uh is there somebody going to be here that if the pets or the other children are becoming an issue uh, that they can take them or watch them. So we make sure that they have somebody a- around that's available to, to back that up or to cover that. Typically, we look at their house, yeah. we go through the kitchen, we look at their towels, we, we tell really? them what they need. Oh, yeah, we tell them what they need. We want to make sure they have the, uh, you know, there's certain uh, utensils that we like to have. And I'm not talking about knives and forks. Right. I'm talking about uh, like cookie sheets to, to use as trays, uh, bowls to put placentas in or actually to throw up in. Garbage bins, certain gar- you know, garbage bags, that sort of thing. We want to have towels ready. We want to be able to warm them up either in the oven or have an electric uh, uh, um, heating pad. Interesting. Wow, this is a m- much more uh, expansive and thorough than I imagined it would yeah, be. Yeah, I give them a three-and-a-half-page document wow. that helps them prepare for their house. I just... Happen to have, have it right a copy there. right here. Do, do, so, so Dr. Stu, do you bring very little? Does the midwife bring very little in terms of supplies and gear to a home birth? Well, we bring all the medical supplies and things like that. The um, the the couple we ask them to purchase a what we call a home birth kit, and there are many different websites. We I use one called Confident ConfidentBeginnings.com. Oh, that's cool. And uh, they go on there and they order. It costs about seventy bucks, and it has. The blue chucks that you can sit on, and it has the pads they wear afterwards, and it has uh, four by fours, which are the little things to wipe up with, and it has iodine, and it has um, uh, some uh, aftercare panties for the mother to wear. It has a big vinyl sheet that covers the bed, and this is a must. For, Arnica. This is a must for the golden couple. seal things like that. Yeah, to purchase this kit is a must. I think every midwife that I know of has a kit that they recommend. Right. Uh, some will actually c- include it in their fee. Other people uh, have them order it separately. But yeah, there's that. And then we bring pretty much everything else. Interesting. Uh, quick question, then we get to this. Uh, the uh, You mentioned another child because in this picture, yeah, they were really very uh, heartwarming photos that you had up there on, on the Facebook page. Uh, th- there was another child there, and their, I assume their first child, uh, seemed to be maybe four or five years old. Yeah. Okay. And you said, and obviously this is not about this child because I don't know anything about this child, but you mentioned a moment ago in talking about uh, potential problems with another child, with an older child, when there's a home birth. What can it be? Could it be seeing mom sort of going through that? Could be potentially for a toddler, 
a traumatic thing, right? I, I suppose. When I, problem would probably not the best word. That was probably a poor choice of words. It's, it's that often the little kids have uh, no interest or a very short attention span. I see. And they want to go off and they want to watch their TV or they want to go play with their blocks or they want to go outside. And, you know, daddy is usually supporting mama. Right. Or the partner. Or, you know, it could be a, a, a gay couple, too, um, who have another child. And so, so they need somebody else who... Uh, can watch the child, right. whether it's a grandparent, a neighbor, a cousin, a sister, babysitter, whatever it is. Yeah, that that may not have anything to do because the child may be very involved in the room, and I've seen that. But you've more often seen than both. not, I'm sure you've seen both. More often than not, the attention span of these kids is very little. And even when the baby's born, they'll come in, they'll look at the baby, and then they'll want to go off and back to watch. Right, the they're video. curious for a moment, but then Dora the Explorer that's, takes precedence. That's correct. Right? Yeah, interesting. Right, it is interesting. Okay, so I but it's, I think it's great because I think again. We talked back about epigenetics, and we talked about our genes uh, expressing uh, some of the uh, of our, you know, they they take in some of our life experiences and, and express them later on. I think it's great when children see birth and or see death, and I just think that um, it it makes them entirely different human beings when they've seen their baby brother, or baby sister born in their own home in mama's bed, and mama's there and daddy's there, and the, and they didn't go off. And disappear and come home with this strange package that makes strange sounds. I've never seen human birth, but I've seen human death. I remember, uh, you know, uh, my, my, my Nana, right? Nana Whitman, my dad's mom. She passed away in our home. I think I was 15. And, uh, and that was sort of, yeah, that was, as I look back on my adolescence, that was sort of a very significant event for me. Sort of saying goodbye to her and her passing very peacefully, I might add. But it was... Yeah, it was, we've, sterilized, we've sterilized that. And, and, and the home otherwise... You know, sometimes I have been in homes where, you know, it's pretty dirty, pretty dusty. Now, mm. again, we did we did the Dr. Seuss podcast on filth is good. Right. So it's not that that's necessarily a bad thing. Uh, but sometimes it's there, there are smells or other things in the house that we would prefer that they get it cleaned up beforehand. Maybe pet issues. Pet issues, right, that sort of thing. Right, I see. Um, uh, but it is part of their environment, and if they're used to it, then who are we to come in and tell them that they shouldn't? Well, at some point, at some point, you have to say something, right? right. Occasionally, there 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 is a, a, a apartment that may not be real conducive to birth. Maybe it's really too small. There's no place to put the tub, or the walls are very thin, or there's a lot, you know that sort of thing. And we may make a suggestion that maybe a birth center might be a better choice for them, but that's a real rare rare event and the birth center is you, you've talked about the sanctuary and we have a link here on dr stew's podcast for for the sanctuary here in los angeles the effort there is to sort of mirror a home birth right i mean to have at the sanctuary something that feels like a home birth yeah i mean the the aesthetics of the sanctuary birth center are are, are, are beautiful i mean it's a really lovely place it, it, it you feel like you're in a little cave but the feng shui is gorgeous right as bliss likes to say and and it is and it really feels good to be there but again the difference being in that if you believe in the mammalian model of birth as strongly as I do, uh, I do then the idea that a woman should stay in her own little home and not have to get in her car and drive even to a birth center and then six hours or five hours after giving birth, put the baby in a car seat and have to drive home, it's so much nicer to be in your own space. What's the number one room in the home that couples choose to have a baby in, to do a home birth? Is oh, it it's the, living the bedroom. Room? No, the bedroom. Oh, it's the bedroom. It is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. By far. Okay. By far, people almost—I would say that probably eighty percent or more of the women that I uh, take care of give birth in in their bed, in their own bed. Right? Yeah, my water birth rate isn't as high as 
as some of my midwife colleagues. I And I, sort of in some of the media coverage of home birthing that, that the water birthing takes, you know, the media for some reason is intrigued. Well, I understand why. Intrigued by the idea of a water birth. And, and we I think some of us lay people outside of the home birthing world and the community, as you are obviously so, so passionately involved, we have the impression that water birthing maybe happens more frequently than it really does. Uh, yeah, I think that I think that that's well, there are midwives who swear by it and they're and Barbara Harper, who is a midwife uh, and, a, and a water birth uh, specialist, goes around the world uh, educating people and setting up water birth centers with water births in it. Um, she is a big fan of water birth, and I think it's really comfortable for the women. Part of the reason mine's a real, little bit lower is because my comfort level is only beginning to rise with water birth. I never had water birth for 25 years and as what, a practicing physician, and sometimes with things like breech delivery or twin delivery, I want to be able to have better access to the mom than when they're in the tub. So yeah. I, I sometimes will have them get out of the tub. They can labor in the tub, but get out of it. Is it safe to say in the beginning, for obvious reasons that I would have or anybody would have, you were almost fearful of water birth? The, the water, because, forgive me, this is how deep is the water? No, I'm not. How no, deep is the water? It's two and a half, three feet deep. It's significant. That's significant amount but of I, water. But I'm not fearful of it, okay? I, it's just awkward for me. Right. It's, it's awkward. As somebody who spent most of his time, you know, between two legs in stirrups. Right. Delivering babies in a hospital, quite in frankly. a hospital setting, right? Um, to suddenly have women on all fours in the water where I have no control over their bottom and stuff like that. Giving up control is the hardest thing for somebody going from a residency program, hospital-based birthing, that sort of teaching, to being in the home birth world where essentially you are a lifeguard and you are not a surgeon, and you're just sort of watching birth and this whole process take place, and. It really is a. It's a very different uh, scenario. That's interesting. And your background, of course, and your 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 time in the hospital makes it, it makes you so much more intriguing, and your evolution on this issue so much more compelling. And and uh, so I, I, we want an update though on your publication of the first 100 births. And we'd invite people, as yep. you mentioned a moment ago, to go back and check out that podcast. If you're new to the podcast and you're just checking out these shows for the first time, go back and check out uh, Doctor Stu's reflections on his first 100 home births because that was really an interesting show. I like to believe all of them are. And and that one was in particular. So good stuff. Good stuff. Yeah, good stuff, Doctor Stu. Thank you for joining us here on Doctor Stu's podcast. All right, we'll see you next time. Brian. Yeah, we'll see. Thank well, it you. couldn't be Doctor Stu's podcast without you. So thank you for joining us because that's you're right, Doctor Stu, and it's Doctor Stu's thank podcast. You sort of yeah. a requirement. But that you know what? Be it couldn't be Doctor Stu's podcast without you either, Brian. Oh, but I think I think I think the doctor needs to be in for this. I think uh, Doctor. You know, Stu and John has become an integral part of of the podcast. Well, let's as not well. get crazy. Let's not right. get crazy. Just stay off the phone, would you? Yeah, John, John please. All with right. the chatting, our producer here in the background. Right. No on Prop Forty Six, everybody. Oh yeah, and more on that, of course, as we get closer to Election Day. Thanks for joining us on Doctor Stu's podcast. I'm Brian Whitman for my friend Doctor Stuart Fishbein. We'll see you next time.